Thank you. Oh, well, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> I'm a little dry today, so I'll be reaching for my water fairly often, I think. Well, we're going through the book of 1 Timothy. As we know, it's been mentioned. We've had our, our reading today. <clears throat> and it's a, a book that contains a lot of instructions. These are God's instructions. We just remind ourselves before we come to the text. This is what God, they contain things that God demands from his people. And uh, so we'll be looking at that. Last week, we go to our um, here's the first slide of my talk. Can we all see that okay? Good. Um, last week, just to give us some context, we heard about family life within the church and a gospel-shaped respect for each other. We saw that in the very being of God, there is family. It's God the Father. He has a son, and his name is Jesus. He's the first of many brothers, as we heard from Romans 8.29. We heard about <clears throat> this church family um, in Ephesus. So this church family were located in Ephesus. It's from the text from 1 Timothy 5. And if you have Bibles, I forgot to say, please do open, open them to that text. Um, and we heard about this church family. So we heard about Samuel Sr., St. Joan, and the infamous Gloria Glitzy. And there's a, a picture there, um, which I've shamelessly stolen from Phil's slides without, without his permission. I hope he doesn't mind. So this is... This is the family, the church family framed in Ephesus at the time of the early church. There's a time where there's no state-provided help for anybody or benefits of any kind. So the widows were entirely reliant on the church or husbands if they remarried. So within the family, we heard that there should be proper respect, gratitude, and value attached to the people there. And practical support for those who really need it. But there are places where that, that line is drawn when it comes to practically supporting somebody like Gloria Glitzy, the younger widow, had a lifestyle of pleasure and lived for the fulfillment of her sensual desires rather than prioritizing her service to Christ in the church family. But then, of course, there's the flip side to that coin. There are lifestyles of people that should cause us to respond with absolute support and love such as St. Joan, known for her good deeds both inside and outside the church. There was a clarity to her character, wasn't there, we heard last week. So that's where we are. We're looking at the church family, and I think the same can be said for pastors and elders, which is our subject today. So we come to our text, and the theme of respect and family continues it's a very practical text. There's a lot of instruction in here. And it tells us that God, as I was saying, demands certain things from his people, such as, and it looks like I haven't put the slide in, one of the three main, main kind of points which we'll look at as we go through. It tells us that God demands respect for the elders. It's an essential thing. God requires a balanced view, requires us to have a balanced view in decision-making and a view of others and it requires us to have a healthy view. There must be a care and a maintenance taken for God's people. So over the course of the verses, we'll see how this, this shaped respect uh, is handled in a balanced and healthy way. And then we'll dip our toes into the beginning of chapter 6, which covers uh, a respect for slaves. 
So verse 17, who are the elders in this text? The elders. I'm not going to draw, draw this out too much in, in delving into these characters because others have already spoken about this, this subject in this series of talks. I'd recommend going back to David's talk on 1 Timothy 3. It was very encouraging. We'll just refresh our memories on some important points that we'll draw on as we go through the text. Firstly, elders are leaders. The text says that they direct the affairs of the church. It's a word that means, uh, I won't try and pronounce this, presbyteros. Um, elders direct the, the affairs of the church. It's a word that means to stand before or to rule. We come across this role in Acts 20 where the elders are referred to as also as el- overseers and shepherds. Apparently it comes from a word meaning one that goes, one who goes before. And it denotes someone who not just leads or holds office, but someone who has uh, about them a ultimately a spiritually mature person. The word is referring to mature men specifically. We know this also from the context of the letter. There is a feminine form of this word presbyteros that occurs only once in the New Testament and we see that up in verse 2 and it's used in a sense of older women. The word is plural. In fact, eldership in the Bible is always plural. That's what we see. So Ideally, and I underline this word, ideally, um, there would be more than one as a, as a kind of standard for a church. It is an ideal. That's what we, we would aim for. So there are the elders in our text. So we can say uh, we can add these, these elders to Philip's list of the, those in the church family at Ephesus from last week. So let's welcome to the family pastor, pastors Pedro and Percy. My uh, artistic integrity is in question here, I think. Maybe it's something that we can, we can get going in the church, having some uh, workshops on drawing stickmen. So those are elders. So the text goes on to tell us that these elders are worthy of double honor, especially those who work as preaching and teaching. So the word work there, it isn't just simply work. It isn't something done just... In your spare time, something small. It means hard work whereby you toil and you break a sweat. And I I do stress here that the text is talking about, when it talks about preaching and teaching, it's talking about the specific role of, of elders, not to all who just happen to have a gift of teaching uh, by God's grace. Uh, it's a unique gifting and um, role in itself. So Romans 12 actually separates out the gift from teaching uh, from the gift uh, of leading, and the word lead, uh, leading in that Romans 12 text is actually uh, meaning again to manage or to rule. I'll just read over that quickly. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If one's gift is prophecy, let him use it in proportion to his faith. It's from verse 6, and um, just moving on down the text in verse 8, uh, it says, If it is leading, let him lead with diligence. There's two, two separate tasks there. So all overseers have to be able to teach according to the qualifications from 1 Timothy chapter 3. But not all people teaching are necessarily overseers. So when it comes to this double honor, we are specifically talking about overseers here. Elders, shepherds. So they're worthy of a double honor. And it means a perceived value. 
Paul goes on to explain what that means by quoting scripture. He draws that out. Firstly, from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, where he says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. There's a, a picture there I found, uh, which is uh, royalty-free. Uh, so no captions necessary. But it's a picture, an illustration by a Georgian artist called Nico Pirosmani. Nico Pirosmani. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, but if you wanted to look him up, there he is. So these days, we have machines to harvest the grain. I had a great time learning about this because I really was a bit ignorant of how all of this is done. I just, you know, we, like anybody, go to Asda and pick up the loaf of Hovis. But we, these days we have machines. But before the days of machines, people would gather up the wheat and they put it on the floor. And this floor was called a threshing floor. And then they would attach a sledge to an ox. Now this sledge was a big piece of wood and in the wood they'd have all these big stones embedded into it. And what would happen is they'd, they'd lead the ox round in circles in this threshing floor and the, the sledge would drag over the wheat and it would separate the grain from the wheat. Really interesting process. Um, so as the ox was going round, he'd see the grain on the floor and he'd, he'd bend down and he'd nibble on the uh, on the grain. And this was a, a, a just reward for the ox, isn't it? He's pulling the sled and doing all of the work, all of the hard graft. There's no reason why the ox shouldn't eat. And that's why um, Paul is, is using this um, example. And he's saying, don't muzzle the ox. Don't, you know, let him eat. Let him be sustained. Let him have his reward for the work. These elders are worthy to have their reward for the hard work. It doesn't mean let's tie a big piece of wood to our elder and make him walk in circles. That's why he goes on to quote Luke also. So he's quoting from the Old Testament. He goes on to quote from the New Testament. It's Paul and he says, the worker deserves his wages. So this double honor is deserved. But it doesn't just end with honor. We tend to think of honor in a very one-dimensional way in this society in terms of respect. The term incorporates value, a price paid. These elders are not just worthy of the, the normal honor that we think about every day, but the resources that they need to do the job, to oversee the church family. So the question is, why does the text emphasize especially those who toil in preaching and teaching? Well, elders, all elders should have that ability to teach, as we've heard. It's a prerequisite of the position. If you're blessed to have a plurality of elders leading the church, maybe, this is a general held view, I think, from what I could gather, uh, maybe some would prefer to really focus on preaching and teaching as opposed to maybe those who might oversee uh, administration or supervise some other, other areas. Um. This is likely what Paul was getting at, but I'll just add a rhetorical question to this thought. And I'll say, what good overseer doesn't labor over God's work? It's an interesting question, isn't it? How can you shepherd a flock without really knowing God's word? 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, we've mentioned this a few times in this series, says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, 
so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So I would lean towards saying that any elder that rules well is not going to do so without laboring over God's word. Because without it, they would not be thoroughly equipped. So an emphasis is placed on those who labor in preaching and teaching. Because how can a church survive without that? It's crucial to a church. The elders toiling in laboring uh, are doing so in God's word for the church family. And they are worthy of the double honor. This is what the text says. This is what God says. That is... Just to recap that, a particular respect and a sufficient sustaining wage in proportion to the work. The worker deserves his wages. But there is a qualification there. That is that they also have to rule well, i.e. commendably correctly. So knowing God's work isn't enough, is it? They have to be living it out. The double honor isn't there to fund a lifestyle, much like we've heard about Gloria Glitzy. It's not there to fund a, a lifestyle that doesn't agree with God's word. And so we ask, are they living up to the list of qualifications from 1 Timothy 3? But for those who rule well and are obedient to God's word, God attaches this value to them, and that's the value that the church family should acknowledge and respect. Paul continues into verses 19 and 20. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it was brought by two or three witnesses. Those elders who are sinning you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. Excuse me. So the position of elder is a prominent position. People in those positions are usually uh, more likely to be challenged or accused of something since the role often uh, includes things like giving instructions or sometimes telling people where they are going wrong. So Paul says to Timothy, if there's an accusation, make sure that there's sufficient evidence before you go pointing the finger The sin needs to be verified. And this is an established biblical principle. Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 says, A lone witness is not sufficient to establish any wrongdoing or sin against a man, regardless of what offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. What this doesn't mean, I think it's worth saying, is that the minute an elder does something wrong... We take them and throw them before the church and say, sort him out. You know, that something might just be a mistake. It might be just a moment of poor judgment. You know, people aren't perfect. We all make mistakes. So obviously this requires wisdom and discussion. If an elder accidentally steps on your new white shoes during the church lunch and he's busy talking and he doesn't apologize, might be an idea to speak to him before you go gathering witnesses and then throw him before the church. Look at my white shoes. Matthew eighteen sixteen says this. If your brother sins against you, go and confront him privately. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter 
may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And here we have that language again. So I appreciate that this is something that requires some courage, doesn't it? Some people struggle with that, some people don't. It's not easy to go to someone and say, hey, you know what? I'm a little bit offended at what you've done. And they might just say, oh, don't, what have I done? And you can have a conversation and draw it out. We're all capable of being wrong. But going and speaking to your brother, your church, family, it's the honorable thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It honors them as an elder. So we're all capable of being wrong. Here's a picture that I spent way too much time on of two bunnies. The season, the, uh, the season, I'm thinking of farming. <laughs> the, the situation seems obvious, doesn't it? This poor little bunny is uh, not, not going to get a good harvest, but the other bunny is feeling right, rather proud of himself because, you know, he's going to get a good harvest. Sometimes things aren't always what they seem. I'll let you laugh that out. <laughs> He's going to eat well tonight. Even the most seasoned and experienced of people are capable of being wrong. It's just the way it is. We're imperfect beings. There was only one who was perfect. That is Jesus Christ. So take the time to speak to them if this occurs. Get to the, the root of the matter. You see what I did there? One person did Then if the elder does not confess, others may need to be involved in a conversation so that the truth might be established. This takes wisdom and prayer, which I think offers something towards an explanation as why it's preferable to have more than one elder if you can. Verse 20, if the elder is to be proven guilty, he is to be rebuked before everyone so that others can take warning. That's uh, certainly strong language, isn't it? It's a strong thing to do. Elders are to be an example to the flock in their lives. We know this. And here we see not just the good examples. If a situation arises whereby an elder's lifestyle is not matching up to what God expects, not matching up to God's word, this is to be an example too, so that others may not be led the same way. Again, I don't think this means simple mistakes. So nothing is is gained by the church, knowing that Pastor Pedro, that's quite hard to say, Pastor Pedro st- stepped on your new white shoes. What good would that do? No. I think, obviously, if it's a situation where a person is not responding and it needs several, several people to have the conversation, if, if there's no repentance to the sin, uh, it does require wisdom discussion and then it would need to, the church discipline would need to go forward. I think I've lost my place. What am I doing? Here we go. Yeah, so then the church would need to know what's going on, what's been occurring. Um, because it may be that this discipline is needed. If the elder is found to be living that lifestyle which contradicts God's commands, action would need to be taken because that person might not be fit for that role. So then the church would need to know what's happening and it's not for the purpose of gossip and it wouldn't be for the purpose of finger pointing or self-gain, but so that it would 
will, the people of the church will stand in fear of sin. That's one of the reasons, isn't it? That's what the text says, will stand in fear of sin. But also for the restoration of that person. That's the crucial part of it. When discipline doesn't happen because you want to cast somebody out. That's never the way. It's not the way families operate. You want to restore that person. You want to put them on, a, on the right course and bring them back in. So fear of sin, we could say, would act as a prevention and warning to others to be tempted into leading the same uh, lifestyle so that others would not be tempted to lead the same lifestyle. But moreover, that it would lead to a reverence, not of, of anybody, but of God's word as the ultimate authority in the church. This means that the church family have a responsibility as well. That responsibility is to have a balanced view of our leaders. Not to be worshipped or followed without question, but at the same time, they are worthy of the double honour. We don't need to invoke church discipline the minute a mistake is made. Uh, Elders are worthy of respect. They're not just elders. They're not just a title. They're our church family and crucially our brothers in Christ. Verse 21. So Paul takes this idea of having a balanced view and he he runs with it and he attaches some very strong language to it by saying to Timothy in this letter, I solemnly charge you in the sight of God and Jesus Christ and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favoritism. That's a strong word, it's a strong image to be invoking, isn't it? So, as we have our ordered church family here on earth, we also stand before God's ordered heaven. God the Father, Jesus the Son of all creation at his right hand, and their elect angels. And no one, no one on this earth has a more balanced view than our God, who hears and sees everything absolutely perfectly. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says, God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Therefore, Paul is saying to Timothy, judge fairly in everything, because you stand before the holy judge. It's a challenging thought, isn't it? It certainly brings out uh, questions about what we do in our in the dark and in the light, as it were, in private and in public. So the words in the text here, the, the key words are partiality and prejudice. Or sorry, partiality slash prejudice and favoritism. The idea is, as we were saying, there's one of balance. It's not leaning one way or the other unfairly. It's prejudice means coming to a conclusion before you have established all of the facts. This involves assumption, maybe through past experiences with that person or even things you might have heard on the grapevine. So a person might be inclined to say, Andrew definitely took the chocolate cake from the church fridge because I've seen him eat chocolate cake and he has a key to the church. That wouldn't be a fair assumption, would it, in this hypothetical situation? That's prejudice. And then we have this word favoritism, which is a similar thought, but leans in favor of, of this, this imaginary person called Andrew. If anybody here is called Andrew that I've missed, I apologize. I uh, should have used a better name than that. 
more uncommon. Um, so a person might be inclined to say, Andrew couldn't possibly have taken the chocolate cake from the church fridge because I know his mum. Wouldn't be a fair analysis of the situation either, would it? I jest with these examples, but the point I'm making is in establishing the truth of sin, there must be a balanced, godly way of seeing things. This is what God is demanding in his text. Timothy is here to bring order to the church at Ephesus with God's help, is to do so in a way that is in keeping with this good leadership, not just in the settling of sin and matters of discipline, but in all things, that's what the text says, do nothing out of favoritism. Fairness must be present within the eldership. And this requires prayer, I think, as it, by implication. Sometimes the truth of the matter might be unclear. We don't know all of the truth of every situation. That's, that's something God does. And so we pray, don't we? Because who better to ask than the perfect judge who sees absolutely everything? Verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So we have this image of laying hands on someone. In the book of Acts, uh, chapter 6, some of the practical things that needed to be uh, done within the church were not being done, so the apostles needed to appoint people to take up these roles. Um, it's Acts chapter 6, verses 3 and 6, if you wanted to look that up. And so what they did is they assigned people and they used this symbolic act of laying hands on people. It usually happens, it's something we still do today, when appointing someone to a position or an office of responsibility within the church, they lay hands on them and they pray for them. So we know from the context that Paul is saying, don't be hasty in appointing others, sorry, in appointing elders. I think the same would apply to deacons as well, as we read in 1 Timothy 3, they're to be tested first, but we are, we are talking specifically about elders here. So there's a serious responsibility here because if this process is rushed and the church ends up with someone ruling that is perhaps unfit to rule or doing very questionable things, that can damage the church. And the people making the decisions to make, put these people in charge, put these elders in charge, it, the text says, could find themselves partaking in sin. That's a very, very strong message to hear, isn't it? No one wants to be involved in someone else's sin. Keep yourself, keeping yourself pure, it takes discernment. It takes time and prayer. And this is for the sake of purity of God's church. Again, humans can't see into the depths of someone else's life and heart, but God can. Prayer is essential to this. So appointing an elder, this process, as we know all too well, it takes time. It takes care. It takes detail. It takes attention. I do think there is a flip side to that coin. If, it, if that's what a church needs, there does need to be a point where a decision is made. But it's a very, very difficult process. We can pray over our church as we go through this difficult process ourselves. Verse 23, a little wine. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because your stomach and frequent illnesses. That verse jumps out at us, doesn't it? 
One minute we seem to be talking about responsibilities and discipline and church elders and Paul suddenly stops and he addresses Timothy directly and he says, stop drinking only water. Use a little wine because, you're, because of your stomach. I think it doesn't immediately fit in quite, as, quite how we'd like it. But Paul comes, let's look at the context properly. Paul comes from saying, keep yourself pure in the context of the church and, and sin. And many have linked this verse directly with the wine to say that Paul is talking about drunkenness. I think there's a sense of that here, but because the word he says to use a little wine, I think he's saying, yeah, okay, a little bit is, is good. Uh, but really, the subject of volume has already been tackled earlier on in the letter. Uh, so I think the inclusion of this health condition is perhaps Paul saying to Timothy, keep yourself healthy. I think this is the... the the overall point, in a spiritual and in a physical sense. And again, we come back to this idea of being the example, honoring God through taking care of our bodies. This is Timothy has to be an example in this. Our bodies, which are the temple of the Holy Spirit, given to us by God, we have to look after them. And the reason why he's mentioning wine, I think, is because back in that day, humans had no idea about bacteria. There was a lot of bacteria around and, um, you know, Timothy's drinking only water, so he's filling himself with bacteria. So I believe, if I'm correct, that they used to mix water with wine to kind of even that out a little bit, or sometimes they drink, drink wine. I think that's what, what is going on there. But Paul is saying it's okay to have a little. Your health is important. Health is extremely important. So wisdom is needed to use what God has given us in a God-honoring way to keep ourselves healthy so that we may be fit for service and a good example to others. We then come to verse 24 and 25. This is very, very challenging language. I, I struggle with this one, if I'm being honest. The sins of some are obvious, reaching a place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. Paul is continuing the theme, continuing the thought of sin in people's lives in the context of elders, he's, he's coming back to that. And he's saying, I think maybe that he's talking about false teachers in Ephesus. Um, but it could include a variety of things that could that would contradict God's word. Some sin is obvious and open, going ahead of them, meaning leading them into judgment. You see it straight away. You see it before you see them. If a person leads an open, a lifestyle of open sin, you will see that first. And you will know that an appointment as an elder or deacon maybe is not, we are talking specifically about elders, is not appropriate for that person at that time because they might not meet the qualifications needed. No, they wouldn't if they were leading open sinful lives. Care and conversation still would need to happen for that person. As I was saying, the theme of restoration is important. The idea is to bring that person back in. But by being watchful and aware of what God, God's word says, means that in this case, problematic situations for the church can be avoided. However, the flip side to that is some sin is hidden. This is what Paul says. It trails behind them. To some, the sin isn't obvious. It crops up later and often unexpectedly, which could potentially have a massive impact on the church. 
I'm going to say that makes confessing our sins, all of us as a church, really so important for each other and the elders. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It's easy to say, oh, it's my sin, it's my responsibility, nobody needs to know about it. But confession is a powerful way to keep the church healthy and to actively look after each other. So our culture here in England, we have what's called the stiff upper lip, if you've never heard of that. Um, that kind of means being determined in the face of problems. Nothing wrong with that. Determination is good, but it does tend to mean that people don't reliable, reliably convey the truth of their feelings. You could go into work and have two bruised eyes and your shirt could be torn and you're, you're going in with a limp and uh, you know missing teeth and, and someone will say to you, how are you doing, Tom? Yeah, all good. Yeah, that's, that's our culture. Um, confess your sins. Get it off your chest. Pray for healing and be healed. Paul goes on to say, in the same way, good deeds are obvious. Even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. And he's drawing up this idea of balance again. It's okay looking for the hidden sin. It's also important to actively look for the good things as well, isn't it? Good things cannot remain hidden forever. By having a balanced view, elders are to lead the example of maintaining the health of themselves and the other elders, the health of the church and the glory of God. We come to the end of this chapter and we are just very quickly going to look into uh, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It's very, very light touch on this um, because this could be another sermon all on its own. But we're thinking of gospel-shaped respect and respect for our elders in all of these processes and things. And these verses continue in this form just by addressing other, other people within the church, so the slaves. So slavery is a very difficult subject to talk for us to talk about and interpret because of the age that we live in, particularly in the West. It's tempting to think that we live in a society and, and, and a time where we progress beyond slavery. Let me say this, absolutely not the case. 49% of the world, 49% of countries in the world, it is still lawful to have slavery. There is still lawful slavery. This still goes on today. This is something, something we do need to think about. So in the time of the early church, slaves or bond servants were an ongoing part of that world. And there's not enough time for me to cover the history in that, but there are many resources out there that, that do. But I want to make one important point from this text that we read earlier. The verses aren't saying that the institution, this is something that often comes up uh, in, in conversation. I've, I've, I have atheists, a lot of atheist friends, and I often it's one of the things that they say. is, oh, God thinks slavery is okay. No, that's not true. This isn't a, an institution that pleases God. It is a human institution. It's an institution that sees people treated as objects. And that's not what God wants for people. God wants to see us, as the text says, within the context of the church family. He sees people as family. And that, that does include showing love to people who aren't Christians. Okay, Genesis 1, 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
Even slave owners are made in the image of God, but because of sin, humans have corrupted the nature of authority for their own purposes. All sinners, without exception, need to be shown God's love. And in verse 2, even when the masters of the slaves are Christians, those under the yoke of slavery would serve them all the more. That's challenging, isn't it? We picture ourselves potentially being in slavery and we think, can we really live up to that? Can, would we really be able to follow the word? Would we really be able to set that example? But the Christians are not to despise their owners because they were brothers and maybe should know better, but to love them because they love the Lord. We know as Christians that the word says the Lord is with us in any circumstance. He never leaves us and never forsakes us. So our circumstances don't determine how obedient we should be to God's word. We to set the example. We represent God and we represent the teaching and the doctrine of Christ, the word of God. Our help comes from the Lord. We have strength in him in every difficult circumstance. That's our text. We've covered quite a lot and uh, actually making fairly good time. Let's draw some conclusions. Hopefully I've managed with God's help to draw out some important things as we've gone through this text. I won't be making any elaborate conclusions. I think we've we've tackled the things as as we've gone on. There are a few things I can think we can just remind ourselves of today. So firstly, we, like many churches, find ourselves in this difficult position where we read from God's word about a plurality in eldership. They're almost abundant when you read the text. Uh, and yet we struggle, we seem to be struggling to find even one right person to step into this role. If we're being really honest with ourselves... I think we find ourselves in this position after a really difficult couple of years and it's very easy to be discouraged and frustrated and say, well, let's just do something about it. Um, Because COVID has changed the way we live. It's changed the way we interact. Um, And there's a lot of varying opinions on that. Listen, often difficult circumstances can unbalance our view of things. I'll put my hand up on that. I'll say I'm, I'm very guilty of that. Very unbalanced views within over, over this time. Found it a very confusing time. Our text today speaks of a gospel-shaped respect for overseers, not blindly following them or funding them to do whatever they choose to do uh, because they have an important title but, title, but because they are our brothers, they are our family. And God says that they are worthy of our support as they supervise the running of the church. And they wrestle to keep the authority, it's God's authority, that's the word of God, that's the foundation of the church. And I think we can encourage each other as Calvary to say that we're really blessed with that. Certainly in the 11 years that I've been here, it's always been about the gospel of Jesus. The word has always been at the center of everything, whether there have been mistakes made or not. And we have, I think, a very good people have always said, and we, the Lord has blessed us with a family mentality. This is something that, that God has really done well within this church. And uh, yeah. So we support 
our elders. We support our leaders and we trust them. And we do that with confession, forgiveness, compassion, care, provision, but also wisdom and discernment, which we've seen from the text. And we help each other in keeping the word of God centered to our lives, even when we make mistakes. Now, that's my conclusion for the church. Um, I have a conclusion. If you're not a Christian and you happen to be uh, listening to this, happen to be watching at home, because you might think, well, none of this applies to me, actually. I don't go to church. I don't have an elder. Um, to you, I say quite simply, there is a reason why the leader is to be an example in the good and the bad. There is a reason why the servant is to serve joyfully. And there's a reason why the Bible is the center of both of their lives. They all point you towards one amazing person. And that is, as I've put on my slide, a leader that never sinned, a friend that forgives a king that came to serve, a servant that died for his family, and a master that conquered death so that you could live forever. This is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and the ultimate authority that we all can count on. Amen.